This week's podcast is brought to you by Campbell University Youth Theological Institute, or CYTI. CYTI invites students ages 14 to 18 to stand at the intersection of faith and vocation, beginning with a two-week summer residential experience at Campbell University. During the two weeks, students explore their own stories of who God is calling them to be and what God may be calling them to do. Students spend time with our faculty, industry leaders, and service agencies, experiencing and reflecting on the disciplines of social entrepreneurship, restorative justice, public health, engineering, and congregational leadership, as well as how to positively impact their communities through faith, work, and volunteerism. Our goal is for students to begin to understand their gifts, interests, talents, and passions as ways in which God may be preparing them for their work in this world. Limited space is available for the summer of 2018, June 24th through July 7th. Learn more at campbell.edu backslash C-Y-T-I or find Campbell Youth Theological Institute on Facebook. Also check back regularly for our blog posts and information about one day student faith and vocational events in January. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Our podcast this week will center on a conversation on the theology of vocation as we take a look at story photographers and a conversation with Brian Foreman of Campbell University's Youth Theological Institute. We also want to keep you in the loop of several upcoming episodes, including Hannah McMahon of the New Baptist Covenant, Jack Jenkins of Think Progress, Zach Hunt, John Singletary of Baylor's Diana R. Garland School of Social Work, and stories from pastors and practitioners from across the fellowship, including a look at CBS partnership with work in McAllen, Texas, with Church Starters and Baptist Universities of America. Before we get to our conversation on a theology of vocation, I want to make you aware of Church Works in 2018. Church Works will be held at Trinity Baptist Church in San Antonio, February 26th through the 28th. Church Works creates a space for renewal and ministry through practices of creativity, community, and worship. To teach the people of God, educators need a place to be equipped, to be inspired, and to be renewed. Church Works is a three-day event for all practitioners of education and spiritual formation in congregational settings. Visit cbf.net backslash cw backslash churchworks for more information about Churchworks 2018. Ashley Stevenson is the owner of Story Photographers. For nearly a decade, she's been telling the story of families, individuals, through the transparent art of photography. Ashley does beautiful work. Her ability to think non-traditionally to capture the narrative of life, from new births to weddings, from engagements to individuals, is quite remarkable. Ashley, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So tell us a story about story photographers. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be saying the word story a lot today. <laughs> um, story photographers was actually never the plan. Uh, I had a phase where I really wanted to be an artist when I grew up. I was the person that always had a camera on her in middle school and high school and college, which I'll note my age here. That's before smartphones, so it was a... Um, specific effort to have a camera on you to take pictures and everything. Um, But I went to Campbell University for undergrad, which is where I met Andy. Uh, And I decided to be a religion and Christian ministries major. I shot stuff on the side, but just never thought that it would actually be a job. And after graduating, I went to Duke Divinity School for a year. 
Um, no offense, Duke friends, but I was pretty miserable <laughs> during my time there. Um, and at the end of my first year, I had this dream where I was treading water, like in a storm, stormy waters, and I was holding my camera out of the water. And that's when I realized, oh, okay, well, maybe I should uh, take a break with Divinity School and try this photography thing. Um, I always thought I would go back to Divinity School, but so far I have not done that. Um, but fresh out of Duke, I was working a couple different part-time jobs, one being with the State Office of Christian Women's Job Corps, hey WMU ladies. Um, I was shooting on the side and just really did not think it was going to be a business, that it was going to turn into my full-time job. But three years after that, um, enough people had referred us to their friends and their family, and it became a business. It became a thing. And so I am actually starting my 11th year um, with Story Photographers. So here we are. As you, as you think around, uh, obviously, intentionally going into Campbell, focusing in on uh, religion, and then heading to divinity school, um, there's a sense of vocational calling in your life. So how has story photographers uh, come out of this vocational calling? Um, I love that question because for a long time, I kind of fought that. Um, I, I, as I look back, I realized I started story photographers in a time where I did not want the ministry label. Um, I had been a part of a couple different churches that had imploded and divided and fallen apart over issues that were really important to me and that I felt like were very much a part of my call. So um, when I started the business, people around me would say, oh, I see how what you're doing is ministry. And I would think, oh, I just don't want that label. It just has so much baggage and it feels kind of exclusive. Um, and I just really, it wasn't a time that I wanted to be labeling anything as ministry. But now I'm at a point where I really do see how it was ministry for me. Um, I realized that looking back, the times that I have been in ministry, it was when I created spaces when I didn't see one for me. Um, so, for example, in college, my freshman year, I started a Bible study because I didn't have any girlfriends, and I wanted to, I had a bunch of guy friends, didn't know a lot of girls at Campbell, so I started a Bible study to meet girlfriends that way. Um, so I just, I look back and I see, okay, when there's not space for me, when I don't see a place that I can be in ministry, I always create it. And now I know that that's what I did with story photographers. I wanted to do something where I could work with women. Um, I wanted to do something where I could openly work with gay couples. Um, and so this was the way that I got to do that on my own. Hmm. It's, been, it's been fascinating following you, um, of course, as every millennial and Gen Xer does on social media. <laughs> and seeing this, this, the fact that, I mean, it's such a, a carefully chosen um, terminology around what you do because you're sharing the story of others um, and, and following some of those specific stories I've seen the moments where um, in one in particular where you, you shot the wedding for this young couple and then within the next year uh, he died mm. and um, your ability to not only share that story but to step back into the story and I would label that as incarnational ministry mm. how, do, how do you see your work as incarnational 
Mm, well, again, I would have resisted that question <laughs> for a long time, um, but I, I understand it now. So I, on a very basic level, I've realized that, you know, in telling people's stories, um, something really important there is just choosing to see people. Um, and very recently, within the past few days, I connected back up with, so in college, one of my favorite um, stories in the Bible to study was um, Hagar and how she talks about, you know, she names God, the God who sees me where I'm at. And it's just so foundational and so just basically important for people to be seen. And so for me, yes, I can take people's pictures, but I want to show people that I see them in a really authentic way. So our tagline is that every story is important and worth telling. Um, so for me, the tagline is that every story is important and worth telling, and that means the happy stories on a wedding day for a family shoot, um, but it also means acknowledging the sad parts of someone's story um, and being honest and authentic about that because I don't think we do enough of that right now on social media and in our world. Um, we like to put the shiny, happy parts of our life out there, but um, that's not fully life. There's other parts of that too. Um, so I wanna show people that it's okay to be honest about what's going on in your world and that um, sometimes those parts of the story are worth talking about and documenting too. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, following those stories and then seeing how you respond to those stories, it's, and I know you might not label it this way, um, but in those moments you're being the presence of Christ mm. and it's, uh, and you're able to do it in ways that sometimes paid professional ministers, you know, um, are not able to because you've made the time um, and you've had the willingness to hear people's stories, to step into those key moments of their lives. And so when something tragic happens, like a young man uh, dying, to be able to step back into that story because you have built that mutual respect and that trust. So you not only are being the presence of Christ in this high and holy moment, like a wedding day, but this holy and just atrocious moment of death. Mm, thank and you. That's powerful. Thank you for saying that. No, I, I've really realized that, you know, anybody can learn how to photograph a wedding. Anyone can photograph portraits. Um, but what all of us as story photographers tried to bring to the table um, are fruits of the spirit kind of behavior. And I feel like our world really lacks that right now. Um, being truly loving and truly warm and kind and gentle um, and patient. There, there's so many times where we need to be patient. And we don't get a lot of examples of self-control in our culture right now. Um, but offering those things and how we do what we do um, helps establish that trust and helps me show people um, a different kind of way to do things and to relate to one another. And I think that's absolutely foundational to how we've chosen to do things. Well, certainly, uh, recording week, you've had to uh, show the fruit of the spirit of patience. So <laughs> Ashley and I were scheduled to do a podcast interview earlier this week, and she'd made a commitment to uh, shoot the birth of, uh, of a child. 
And then the child decided it would take 12 hours to come into this world. And so you practice a lot of patience with that couple to, to, to capture the story and to tell it to others. It's true. You know, I have photographed six births now. And those of you that have children know, you just don't get to choose when babies show up. Um, they have their own plan. So yes, I did hang around quite a while during the birth process. That It's really one of the most amazing things to get to photograph like that 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 is one of the one times I can really say that I'm in sacred space when a, a new brand new human is entering into the world um, but that is one of those moments where you know for a while during that shoot I was strictly photographer I really didn't say anything I let everything kind of happen around me um, but I did see this point where I got to and I, I felt like a divine nudge to kind of step in and help um, cheer this woman on um, at a time where I think she needed a little encouragement to know that she could do this. Um, and that's when I'm reminded that that's, that's what I bring to the table. Yes, I can take a decent picture, but I bring me to what I do. Hmm. 12 hours is a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Poor woman. It is a long time. <laughs> well, She did good, though. She did good. <laughs> So, I mean, we're having a conversation around what I would label um, a theology of vocation. And I know, I know you were talking about somewhat resistant to see kind of the incarnational approach to, to your work. But I would say, in many regards, the church has lacked often in helping not just the paid clergy, but to help see all of Christ's followers, um, to see that they are commissioned and sent uh, to be empowered to do the work that they are called to do. Um, how, how do you think others could do better? How can the church maybe do better in helping people understand the theology of vocation and the sense of, of incarnational ministry in the workplace? Mm. Um, I think it takes a lot of authenticity. I think it takes vulnerability. Um, I am very story-themed in what I believe in the world, but I think we have to know and be honest about our stories. Um, what we've experienced, what we've gone through, who we are, why we do what we do, why do we react the way we do in certain situations. Um, I think it takes some space to be really honest with ourselves and then the grace to be honest with each other um, and the vulnerability to get to do that, um, to then find the ways that we can really do all kinds of ministry in the world in, in an authentic, really helpful way. Um, and I think church historically has kind of turned into a place where you kind of put on your best face and you're on your best behavior and you're wearing your best clothes. Um, again, I'm generalizing there. I know not everybody has been that way, but um, I can see church culture trying to move to a place that is more authentic, and I feel really hopeful about that for the church. Well, you know, we talk about the fact that we spend a good portion of our life working. Um, yet, uh, I was just uh, looking at the stat here I read recently, 70% of people express they hate their jobs. Mm -hmm. um, how, how do we turn that around? How do we help create a sense of calling, a sense of passion, uh, a sense of purpose behind what we do? And our in our normal day-to-day -day jobs, not just those that get get paid to do the God God thing. Oh sure. Well, again, I feel like 
our heart work, the work that we are most passionate about, comes out of knowing who we are. And so, yes, sometimes that means creating something new, like I did with Story Photographers, but I also think that means that it shows you how you can plug in with other people. It shows you, if you've been through something and you're watching someone else go through it, it shows you a place that you can jump in and that you can show love and patience and gentleness and, and warmth to other people around you. Um, it doesn't have to be that you completely change jobs, um, but it can be about how you see, how you relate to people in the space that you're already in. Hmm. Yeah, I love what you're saying there because I think for the longest time when we, I think if I was to use the terminology of theology of vocation uh, with most people, they would be thinking, you know, what's the, what's the evangelism tactic by which we, you know, encounter our coworkers? But, you know, I would say there's something more natural into what you're, you're saying here is that um, you're talking about living out the example of Christ each day at work. Um, these are people that you see 40 plus hours a week over how many years and you have the opportunity to build this genuine um, ch trust and mutual respect for one another. Um, and that, that matters because um, too often we've compartmentalized the church and the ministries of the church to um, this glorified, sanctioned thing. But, but what you do and what I hope, would hope our listeners and our congregations would begin to think about is going to those neutral spaces like work to be peace, to be love, to be compassion, to be hope, um, to be a voice of justice. Yeah, I just, I really feel like that the labels, the confinement to a certain time of ministry, a certain time at church, it's helpful. There's such good reasons and intentions and beautiful things that come out of all of that. But I also see how we live in a world where certain labels can lead to divisiveness um, and that can lead to assumptions before someone even knows you. And so sometimes it is about a way of living, a way of behaving, a way of treating people that doesn't necessarily have to be labeled with a hundred different Christian labels. Um, again, I think that was one of the reasons why I was resistant the first several years of starting story photographers to even talk about it being ministry. I, I may have done that among family and friends, but I really didn't do that publicly at all because I knew one of my specific callings with that, and I'll say that word now, um, was to create a space where gay people could feel loved and affirmed by me. And previously, I got kicked out of spaces that <laughs> didn't allow that. So not having that label um, helped those people feel comfortable with me. I think there are some vendors in the wedding industry that sort of hide behind their Christian label so that they don't have to work with people that are different from them. And um, I want there to be space at my table for all different kinds of people. Um, people that I disagree with, people that I agree with, people that live differently than I do, look differently than I do. Um, and I think sometimes those labels get in the way of establishing that. So outside of um, being there in the presence of weddings and engagements and new births that take 12, 12 hours, <laughs> that poor woman, that's a long, long she time. She did so good. She yeah. did so good. 
Uh, you have a, another initiative that you worked on um, called See Her Story. Tell us about it. I can talk about See Her Story all day long, Andy, so you may have to stop me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I started See Her Story as just one night a year. Um, it started out as a fundraiser that I would have every April. And the idea came out of, and again, I'm going to use some generalizations, but um, came out of the idea that I observed and I know that women hate being photographed. Um, I watch it all the time. I get laundry listed by women constantly. It happened yesterday at a shoot um, when they tell me all the things they want me to Photoshop about them, that they want me to change, that they want me to make look different. Um, but I also know that women are worthy of being photographed, that um, they need photographs of them by themselves, that it's a therapeutic experience to be vulnerable and stand in front of someone actually seeing you and to trust that they are they're going to represent you well in a picture. Um, so I started with that thought, but then I also know that women are pretty notorious for not wanting to do things just for themselves. So I turned the evening into a fundraiser. Um, so when you first arrive to get in the door, you have to give a certain amount of money or resources off the donations need list at, uh, for Interactive Wake County so that you are also seeing other women's stories in the community. Um, you are helping another woman where she's at in her story. Um, and then once you get into the event, we have food and snacks and drinks and we have hair and makeup people to do hair and makeup touch-ups. Um, and then women get the opportunity to be photographed by themselves. Um, which is scary, but we try to make it a fun experience. Um, and so this past year was our third year doing that. And in the past year, I've kind of felt, see her story moving from just one night to more of a concept, a movement. I'm still working on what word I should say with that. Um, but now it's more of this idea that as women, we need to slow down and look at our stories and see how they are informing how we move about the world, who we are in the world, our health in the world. Um, and so this, this coming October, I will actually host my first See Her Story retreat, which I'm really excited about. Um, it goes off that same concept that we are notorious as women for pouring out of ourselves into everything that we do, but we don't pour back in. Or we think someone else is going to do that for us. And what I have learned in my own story is that there's just some of that you have to do yourself. You can't, you can't put it on anyone else. You have to be able to pour back into yourself. So this weekend um, will be for exploring your story, resting, you know, recreating all these wonderful things to help pour back into you and then I will photograph each woman at the end of the retreat um, because I feel like when we have taken that time for ourselves we even look different um, so I want to help create that portrait and that memory piece for each woman that's there um, I have some other things in the works for see your story but I'm also actually in the very early stages of starting see his story so that's coming. It's coming soon, too. So a future episode, maybe? Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. It's a little early, but yeah, maybe so. Well, um, I think it's been fantastic. I, I think to hear the story of someone who is um, doing incarnational ministry um, and doing it in such an authentic way, um, 
is, is something that we need to hear. Um, and this is a story that needs to be shared. I know Ashley's not going to do this, so I'll do this. Uh, hey, if you need a photographer <laughs> for any grand moment of your life, she'll even do a 24-hour labor session oh, uh, if you really need that. Just know that the room and board might involve. So uh, if you want to stay connected with Ashley um, and the other photographers, go to storyphotographers.com. Uh, of course, she's on Instagram and Facebook. It's Story Photographers. I think one of the key pieces in recording that conversation with Ashley Stevenson was to do it um, in a neutral space. Uh, we were recording in a, a coffee shop um, to remind our listeners that uh, we all have the opportunity to express our faith uh, through the way that we excel in our work, through our, the way we're passionate about our work, through the way that we um, drive ourselves to get up each day to use our giftedness and our strengths to serve the kingdom of God. To build a little bit more around this theology of vocation, um, I also sat down to have a conversation with Brian Foreman, who is a professor at Campbell University Divinity School, along with the director of Campbell's Youth Theological Institute. Listen in. Uh, so, Brian, when I think of my personal experience uh, of sensing a call in ministry, um, I think about all the systems that were in place within the local congregation, and then, of course, within my undergraduate and seminary experience, that were there to prepare me for uh, discerning and working through and clarifying that call. Uh, and so clergy really benefit from that, that, that we have all these systems in place to think about this, this vocation of uh, serving the church or serving the kingdom and, and, and professional capacities. Um, but I would say that the church has lacked uh, in creating a sense of maybe a theology of vocation when it comes to, to everyone else, uh, all other followers of Christ, those that aren't going into professional ministry. And you've, you've done quite a lot of work in this area. One of the problems that we've created is that we've almost used the term call exclusively for those who are participating in some sort of vocational ministry or mission work or something along those lines, where if we, if we drop back and really think about these words that we're using, like call and vocation, what do we do with those? And that changes the way we approach this. So if we think about call as something that is uh, is there for every follower of Christ, what does that definition mean? And Dallas Willard talks about it in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, and he says that the call for every Christian is to join God in God's redemptive work in the world. Period. Well, if that's the case, then we're all called to do that. So how do we live that out? And I think that's where we get into this idea of vocation. Uh, and, and what vocation means. And one of the places we struggle there as well is we oftentimes make vocation and occupation synonymous. I think we have to be careful about that also. Our vocation oftentimes is our occupation, but there are a lot of people who are at different stages in their lives where they don't necessarily have what we would call an occupation. Um, Stay-at-home parent, whether it be a mom or a dad, uh, a retiree, or somebody who's chosen to do some other sort of work that doesn't fit into this traditional model of occupation. So what does that mean? So if we stop back and think about vocation as something like um, Stephen Garber calls it, vocation is an imitation of the vocation of God. It's knowing the worst about the world and still loving it. Well, it's fascinating if you really think about it. It's like for the church we've known better, like we would, pastors would probably admit how often do we preach a sermon on compartmentalizing our faith to just one aspect of our lives. 
yet we've done parishioners a disservice by not creating the theological capacity to think about um, their work, their vocation as a calling to do the work of the kingdom. But I would also argue to even go even deeper, not just to think, um, you know, uh, that day-to-day ministry opportunity, but to find a sense of fulfillment and life that, that Christ talks about, finding that sense of true life um, by loving what you do and by being passionate about that and bringing your giftedness and strengths into those uh, types of experiences. Yeah, there's a pretty substantial biblical uh, uh, precedent for this as well. The early Christian church, they were called followers of the way. It, it wasn't assumed that they did their faith in one hand and lived their normal Hebrew life a different way. They were just known as followers of the way. It, it, it transcended everything that they do. Um, and so people knew them that way. And you can take that and even drop it back to the words that Jesus offered as in, in, in Acts at his ascension. You know, we read it sometimes and we read it almost as a geographical thing. It's Acts 1, 8. It, it, if anybody wants to look it up, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, we hear that and we oftentimes think about means we go. But what if we rewrote that passage less about geography and more about our station in life? And then, then what does that mean? That's where we get into this idea of what is calling, what is ministry, and how do I live it out in everything that I do and say? And sometimes we've, what we've really done is we've stifled our missional imaginations by not equipping everyday parishioners or lay people or whatever word we want to toss about for them to live a calling, to live the calling in whatever way they do their occupation and or vocation. So, uh, I mean, a good portion of, of your work um, with Campbell's Youth Theological Institute is to start creating that that mindset, that shaping of theology uh, with teenagers. What, do, what does that look like for you? Well, we what we do at Campbell is we've partnered with a variety of different professional schools around campus to say to some of our faculty members, how are you living the kingdom mission? How, are, how is your life reflecting what it means to you to be a person of faith? And that's pretty easy when you talk to people who are working in public health or even our law school, uh, our med school. You you can see it in some of those places. But then when you start talking about engineers, what is a Christian engineer? They don't build Christian bridges. So what does it mean to be a a person of faith working in a field like engineering or business? Um, So those are some of the questions we ask. and, And we're inviting our faculty to work through that along with our high school students that come to us in the summer. In this past summer, we had students who heard from Folks like Jim Morgan, the retired CEO of Krispy Kreme, and how his faith impacted his his work throughout his career. And it didn't look like a workplace evangelism study or a Bible study or something like that. It looked like how do we prepare our companies to make sure that our employees have a living wage or that our employees aren't going to get laid off because of a bad business decision that we've made. Or to talk about principles of hospitality when people come into their stores. I mean, so, so that's been what it's looked like for us in inviting that conversation. And we still think we're just scratching the surface of what that conversation means. Uh, I guess the most important question thing is, um, please tell me he brought like donuts for everybody when he came that day. He did, and they were hot. Okay, because that meeting would have been absolutely null and void in my mind if he had walked in <laughs> empty-handed. <laughs> well, he also gave us a secret that I'm going to go ahead and share with you. He said that if you ever walk into a Krispy Kreme where they actually make the donuts in the in the store, 
He said, what you want to do if the light is on is ask them to get you a donut off of the turn. He said, that is the optimum time to get a hot donut is in the turn. And the people behind the counter will know what that means. Well, since I'm completely transparent, obviously, with you as a good friend, <laughs> but also with our CBF audience, um, my life wish is to ride under the uh, conveyor belt as it is getting the glaze uh, from the Krispy Kreme donut poured over top of it. I think it would probably be one of the greatest moments of my life. A hot Andy now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but okay, so let's get, get back more importantly to this to this piece around um, this theology of a vocation. Mm -hmm. So, w what do you think it would look like for for uh, pastors for uh, for other clergy to begin to to shape a theology of call within their local congregations? Honestly, I think one of the harder parts of it is um, educating ourselves to think about what our folks are doing as vocation and calling. Service industries are easier. We can, we can think about doing a commissioning of the teachers when it's back to school. We can think about doing a commissioning of a mission team going somewhere, a medical missions team, but what does it mean to commission our folks in their everyday lives and in their everyday walks to be the presence of Christ in the world, to live that calling, um, to take up the duties that that pertain to them as they've been gifted? Do we help our parishioners think about what it means to have these particular gifts and how they can be of service? There's a great story of a woman who is uh, cleaning rooms on a children's hospital ward, and everyone knows her, and her job is to clean the rooms. But more often than not, nurses will come in and she'll be playing games with the children or reading with the children. There are even stories that were in this about her where they found her underneath the children's bed playing peekaboo with them, <laughs> right? And they asked her about that. And she said, well, I know my job is to do this. She said, but my calling is to put a smile on children's faces. Right? And she very intentionally used that language of her faith about you know giving them some peace, showing them mercy, showing them grace. All of those things mattered. We see a hospital worker. She sees herself as as a disciple. Hmm. That's powerful. I, I mean, I think, and not to not to throw a wet blanket, I guess, on the church, but I think we've prepared people in this old school sense of like evangelism, like having the right thing to say and sharing your faith there. But as, as you're saying, I think the more important work, or maybe equally important work, is to be that day-in, day-out, consistent presence of Christ there. And that story speaks volumes of that. And there's this battle on philosophies when it comes to work. Like, you know, experts, some experts would argue you need to follow your passions and do what you're passionate about, and that should be your work. And others, uh, Mike Rose got a, a great TED Talk where um, he basically says, like, no, don't follow your passions at all. Roll up your sleeves, go to work, and find your passions in other places. But what I love about uh, shaping a theology of vocation is no matter your circumstances, whether you have the privilege of working at a job that is something you're absolutely passionate about, um, or you're working a job because that's the job you have to have to provide for your family and for your needs, the sense of, um, of calling there to be the presence of Christ is making the best of the circumstances by taking the very attitude this woman is taking. Um, and I would ultimately say it is the more challenging posture because it forces you to come to a place like, 
this isn't the best circumstances for me. I might be working for a horrible boss, but I really do have the opportunity to be um, living into the words of Jesus, of loving my neighbor as myself, uh, loving my enemy, serving those that I don't see eye to eye with. And I think that's a beautiful thing. There's a there's this concept, this idea of pursuing our passions is it's it's a beautiful idea, but we also have to remember that it's a relatively Western notion and one that comes out of privilege. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we get to go to college and choose what we want to study, choose what our profession is going to be, um, that's that's a pretty unique thing globally. And so if we think about the idea of folks who maybe don't get to make that choice and they find themselves in other situations or other settings, take, uh, take the story of Kevin Durant's mother when he won the MVP several years ago. And he tells a story about her working two jobs, her going to bed hungry so that he and his brothers could eat or kids from the neighborhood could eat, um, all those things. And then he, then he says that she's the real MVP. Did she choose that life for herself? Did she choose to be a single mom living hand-to-mouth, paycheck-to-paycheck? I'm going to guess no, that that wasn't about following her passions, um, but it was about doing what she felt like God was calling her to do as a parent in that moment, mm-hmm. um, to be self-sacrificing, to love the world and the people in the world around her despite the circumstances that she found herself in. Yeah, that was that was a powerful speech he gave that year, and he's such a likable guy. I just I still can't get over that. Basically, he cherry picked a championship this last year. We'll we'll forgive him for that. Maybe so. So, uh, since you you know agreed to sit down with me and talk about this as we're sitting on the beautiful campus of Campbell University in the metropolis of Bowie's Creek, North Carolina, your alma mater and mine. Absolutely. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the Youth Theological Institute. So it is a two-week summer program, residential program, where high school students come to us and spend two weeks with us. They're generally ages 14 to 18 years old. And to stand at that intersection of faith and vocation and consider what does it mean. If I'm a person of faith, what has God gifted me with? What are my interests? How do I pursue those interests in a way that's that's faithful? Uh, and, and ultimately, at the end of the day, we want to awaken their missional imagination to what God could be calling them to do what God could be even calling them to be. And so we hear from, as I mentioned earlier, we hear from folks from different schools throughout the university. We go and do service projects in different places. We we visit locations that we don't necessarily think of as Christian ministries, but are in fact doing gospel kingdom work. And then we have those conversations as as a group and as small groups and, and really build those relationships. Then the thing that we are most proud of is the opportunity to offer these students micro grants to take some of those ideas that bubbled up or welled up in them throughout the course of the two weeks back home and to do work with a community partner to institute a program of their of their choosing, something they design. We don't have anything scripted. We're still getting applications in from our first, first cohort, and some of them are uh, wonderful and, and imaginative and inspiring, and I don't know how they're going to do it. But we're going to try to help them do it. Uh, we're going to help you know provide them with some coaching or technical assistance. And the beautiful thing about it is our faculty here who have been a part of the whole institute are willing to give their time in that way as well. Uh, so it's about relationships. It's about helping them understand what incarnational ministry looks like beyond just going to church. But how do you be the church? Hmm. 
Well, for our listeners that are interested in, in plugging uh, high school students into this uh, great program, where can they go to find more information? Sure. Uh, the easiest place to go, obviously, is the website. It's campbell.edu slash C-Y-T-I, Campbell Youth Theological Institute. Before we let you go, it would be an absolute crime if we didn't tell you about Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's reference and referral ministry managed by Craig Janey. If you felt led to a new church or looking to serve your first church, CBF Reference and Referral can help. From discernment to search and call, CBF can equip you to maximize your search with practical resources through the process. Among these resources is Leader Connect, our high-tech matching database that connects CBF ministers to CBF churches. Fill out your online profile and upload your resume today at cbf.net backslash leaderconnect. That's leaderconnect, one word, leaderconnect. As we go, we want to give a special thank you to this week's podcast sponsors, including Campbell Youth Theological Institute and CBF Reference and Referral. Be sure to visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories from our field personnel and church starters, along with their advocacy work and congregational work across the globe.